Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Russ Roberts. Russ is the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He also hosts the award-winning weekly podcast, Econ Talk, which I highly recommend. And he's the author of five books, including How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, and most recently, Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. And that is the topic of today's conversation. We discuss the shortcomings of economics as a science, the power of books, the difference between wild and tame problems, Darwin's embarrassing attempt to rationally decide whether to get married, the utility of techniques like decision analysis, incommensurate goods, free riding, counterfactuals, how the decisions we make change us, how bad we are at predicting future experience, changing moral norms, effective altruism, free speech, whether we are in fact making moral progress, social media, truth versus comfort, problems with consequentialism, free will, meditation, and other topics. Anyway, I really enjoyed this one. I hope you do as well. And now I bring you Russ Roberts. I am here with Russ Roberts. Russ, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you. So I've been looking forward to this. I, you, uh, you are an, a truly OG podcaster. You, uh, you got into the game earlier than I did. Uh, you have a great podcast, Econ Talk, and uh, you have a wonderful new book, Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us, uh, which I, I, it was a great audio book, too. I, I think I consumed it all as audio on a, on a few long walks, and it's especially good for that. It's really... Um, you were a great company for those hours. So um, thank you for what you're doing. And, and perhaps you can uh, summarize your, your intellectual and, and academic background that you're, you're bringing to those projects. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for the kind words about the podcast and the book. I, I should warn my podcast listeners that the audiobook is not read by me, yeah. which they have complained about, but in a friendly way. I was disappointed, but it's actually, it's still good. So it's- uh, <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I'm glad to hear yeah. it. My, my journey is a little bit off the beaten track, but I think the more you talk to people, the more you find out that there is no beaten track. But I started off as an academic economist, trained at the University of Chicago, taught at Rochester, Stanford, UCLA, Washington University in St. Louis and George Mason, worked for a number of think tanks, including the Hoover Institution that I'm still affiliated with. But somewhere in there, I got interested in communicating economics to a general audience. So I wrote a few novels that teach economics. I wrote a couple of rap videos, mm -hmm. started a podcast, wrote an animated poem. And strangely enough, about a year and a half ago, I got asked to be the president of a college in Jerusalem, Shalem College, Israel's only liberal arts college with a core curriculum in philosophy, history, great, great books, great texts. and. Um, decide to move to Israel and uh, be the president of a college. So it's, a, it's an unusual journey. Mm. I used to be really interested in economics. I'm still a little interested in it, but part of the reason I'm the president of this college is I got a lot more interested in philosophy, the life well lived, yeah. and education more generally, which is a, a quite a hard 
hard thing to uh, to do well, it turns out. Yeah, so did you have a, a deep connection to Israel already? Had you spent a lot of time there, or or was this truly a blind adventure? Well, I'm Jewish. I've been to Israel, I don't know, before I moved here, probably a, a dozen times, mm-hmm. maybe more. I've always loved visiting. Uh, never planned to live here. It was not a life. For some Jews, it's a dream to move to Israel and, and become a citizen. It was not our plan, but we jumped anyway when, when this opportunity came along mm. to be president of Shalem College. Did you have any Hebrew at that point? A little bit, a mm. little bit. Katsat. Mm. Uh, now I have a little bit more. My wife is, is semi-fluent in a conversational way. I'm embarrassing, mm-hmm. but trying to get better every day. Nice. My, my college, all of our courses, almost everyone's taught in Hebrew. So that's, uh, even though I'd like to sit in on, say, the Plato and Aristotle class or Homer or Shakespeare, uh, I wouldn't get that much out of them, unfortunately. Maybe next year. We'll see. Right. So um, before we jump into the book, which raises a lot of topics uh, that are kind of core to my interest, you just said a few things about uh, your perhaps waning interest in economics and the difficulty of charting a path through education that retrospectively makes a ton of sense. Perhaps you can give me uh, some of your thoughts on the the limits of economics as a discipline. I think you know many of us who are lay consumers of its products tend to marvel at how unlike a science it often seems to be. And Sam, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> so give me the... Uh, kitchen confidential version of uh, economics, but perhaps also you can say something about how you view uh, the, the enterprise of, of education at this point and its challenges. So economics is very mathematical as it's taught at the graduate level, and it's taught as if it were a science. It's the science of human behavior in, in graduate economics and in undergraduate economics. I think that's the wrong word. Uh, it certainly is a formal way of thinking about human behavior, and the essence of that formal way of thinking is maximization. Uh, We're trying to get the most out of our money or our time. I think one of the misconceptions people have about economics is they assume it's only about the stock market or GDP or Mm. unemployment or interest rates. It is about many other things. It is about how we spend our time. It is about the power of leisure, and it's about the fact that if I choose one thing, I can't choose something else. So in many ways, economics is the study of choice, choice under constraints. I don't have an infinite amount of money. I don't have an infinite amount of time. And it, in particular, e- economists are interested in both individual choices and then how choices aggregate in what are called markets. It's a funny word because we think of a market as like a farmer's market or a stock market. But when economists talk about markets, they mean the complex dance between buyers and sellers in, say, housing or restaurants, and the prices that emerge from that process. And understanding those things and thinking about them thoughtfully in, is a tremendous craft, and it's very valuable, and it's very useful. But economists um, are kind of imperialists. One of my professors, George Stigler, said, there's only one social science, and we are its practitioners. Mm. Not the most humble view. I'm a big fan of George, but uh, he was a very funny man, rare in our profession. But what he meant by that was, Uh, The other social sciences don't really have any models. They're just sort of, they have some theories, but they're not rigorous. Whereas economists, they can predict, they can do sociology, they can do anthropology, they can do psychology. And I was trained that way, and it's a powerful toolkit uh, for thinking about human behavior. 
but it has shortcomings. There are many things it's not very good at looking at. And as I've gotten older, I've started to think that those things that it's not very good at looking at are the things that most of us care the most about. Mm. Our sense of belonging, the, the tribes we're in, the kin folk we have, the sense of dignity that we crave, the feeling that we matter, that we're important, that people pay attention to us. These are the things that, with respect, these are the things that we care about. These are the things that bring deep satisfaction, not just happiness or fun or pleasure. Uh, when an economist talks about pleasure, they mean everything. They mean the ice cream cone. They mean a good job, well done. They mean a great vacation. The problem is that calculus of adding up pleasures and taking away pains, which is a fundamental utilitarian calculus, I think has limitations when applied to the things I was talking about earlier. A family, love, belonging, transcendence, the things that that we care about deeply. I don't think the tools of maximization fit very well in there. I think we need other tools, other ways of thinking about it. So as I got older, I got less interested in sort of, not sort of, I got less interested in what economists' tools tell us and more interested in the parts of the world and our lives that economics has less to say about. I discovered Adam Smith's other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, mm -hmm. which is a book about ethical behavior, the life well-lived, why we do decent things to one another rather than merely be selfish and grasping. He says in there that the pursuit of money and wealth is a fool's game and will tarnish your soul. So those kinds of more philosophical thoughts became more interesting to me. The other thing that I think is related, which I think you're hinting at when you asked about education, is that you know most education as it's practiced in the United States and around the world is... Um, the passing on of information and knowledge. And we live in a world where we have tremendous access to information and knowledge uh, via Wikipedia, via YouTube, via podcasts. And what I think education should be about is the kindling of the fire that is the human mind. That's uh, Plutarch's line, although he didn't say it in English. The, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Mm. I think most education around the world, in high school, college, and even sometimes uh, in graduate school, there's a lot of filling of vessels and not, a much, not much kindling of a fire. And I've gotten interested in the question of how do you allow someone to explore a great text? You can read a great book on your own, and you read it in the company of other people, and with a great teacher to guide you, you're changed, you're transformed when it's done correctly. And that process, which is sadly missing uh, in most undergraduate education, I think, around the world, is, the, um, is magic. And mm. when you've experienced it, most of us never did as an undergraduate, but when you do experience it, uh, it's not just sharing ideas with other people, it's sharing ideas in a thoughtful way under the guidance of, a, of another great mind, the, the teacher. And that is, uh, gives you superpowers, superpowers of how to read, how to think, how to talk with other people respectfully. I think it's the essence of, of what I think of as real education. It's what we try to do here at Shalem College. We don't always succeed, but that's the gold standard. Mm. Yeah, and I often think about reading a great book as a conversation, even though it's, it is in one direction. If you, as you point out, if you're having a larger conversation with a great teacher and your own colleagues about the book, it definitely enriches the experience. But yeah, that's the wonderful thing about books. I mean, we have you know, some very smart 
and uh, in many cases wise person's side of a conversation that they have taken, in many cases, years to prepare. So we're getting the best of their thoughts, and um, we're getting them across the centuries. It's really amazing. I mean, what an amazing technology a book is. How strange, though, that even though it's one-sided, when you read it 10 years later, the second time, they're saying something different. Yeah, yeah. A really great book is a conversation in that sense. And I, Agnes Callard, the philosopher, so, said to me uh, when I had her on Econ Talk, she said, you know, great teaching is teaching you how to talk to dead people. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's the magic of, of, of a book. It's extraordinary. And there are a lot of really talented dead people worth talking to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your book. Again, the title is Wild Problems. And you uh, distinguish wild problems from tame ones. Maybe that's a good place to start. What are wild problems and, and what are tame ones? Tame ones are ones that we can find solutions to using data, an algorithm, evidence. You know, what movie do I want to watch Saturday night? You get a pretty good idea of what might be interesting to me from recommendations that I would get online. Uh, if I want to get from um, Boston to Chicago and beat traffic as, as much as possible, Ways or Google Maps will, will help me get there. I want to get to the moon. It's, it's a tame problem. Uh, it's not an easy problem, but we know how to do it. It's a certain set of steps. There's a recipe. And certain problems in life, recipes are the way to go. An algorithm is, is the way to go. And we're spoiled. We have lots of those techniques for many of the challenges we face in life. Uh, we have websites to give us recommendations. We have crowd, the wisdom of crowds to help us with recommendations even, even more richly. And we'd like most of life to be that way. And most of life is, actually. It's a remarkable time to be alive with the tools that we have for those kind of problems. The problem is there's a handful of problems in our lives that aren't like that, where data and evidence are very little value. And the standard decision-making tools, I argue, are, are not helpful. In fact, can mislead us. These are problems where we don't have a lot of data, either because Things aren't measurable, or the people who have access to the experience can't share it easily. It's hard to put those things into words. Or after I make a decision one way or the other, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be changed. Mm. And so it's even a question of whether rationality is, is well-defined. So these kind of problems are whether to get married, who to marry, whether to have children, how many, where to live, what kind of career to pursue. Now, on some of these problems, you can get some information. You can get some information about the average salary in a, in a, business, in a field, for example. It may or may not apply to you. You can certainly ask people if they're happy, if they're married, or happy if they have children. But I think those are very thin, unbelievably thin and, and sterile ways of thinking about these kind of choices. And as I suggest in the subtitle, these are the decisions that define us. They turn out to tell us both who we are and who we can be. And I think um, for many of these decisions, trying to make a cost-benefit analysis, which is the economist's uh, central element of the, of the economist toolkit, uh, is, I think, the wrong way to go. The most important pieces of those cost-benefit analysis, of that cost-benefit analysis, are hard to measure, can't be entered thoughtfully, and we're often deceived by the ease with which we can quantify certain things, and that often pushes us to ignore others. Mm. I make the analogy of, of the person coming home from the party, can't find their keys, uh, they've lost them, someone comes to help out, finally the 
person helping says, uh, are you sure this is where you lost him? No, nah, I don't think it is, but this is where the light's best. And, you know, I think it's under the street light. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we're seduced by where the light is best. And often the most interesting things are in the shadows and the darkness. So part of my book is trying to help people live in the darkness. Mm. Well, I want to get into some of the core ethical and, and meta-ethical issues around how we conceive of what is good and you know the questions about measurement and aggregating utility. You know, I, I know you have concerns about the limits of utilitarianism or consequentialism, as I usually refer to it. And you know, I, I share some of those, or at least I acknowledge the veracity of some of those concerns. But I think we might there might be some daylight between us philosophically there. And all of this has implications for other things you and I have both talked about in other contexts, like effective altruism, which is in vogue at the moment. But before we get down to something like bedrock, let's stay at a, a level above that and just you know, kind of around the pragmatics of just how people make decisions, how they can make decisions, what is worth thinking about, and how, you know, as you point out, so much of our, our recipes for a good life don't really prove that useful when you're trying to weigh up the, the pros and cons of a, a major decision that defines us. And it, as an example, in your book, you spend a lot of time looking at Darwin's certainly comical, but in the end, somewhat silly checklist for deciding the pros and cons of marriage. Perhaps you can describe what Darwin was up to there, and, and we can use that as a jumping off point. Sure. So uh, Darwin was uh, 29 years old. Uh, he'd taken um, his trip on the Beagle, and he was, uh, he was thinking about settling down. So he wasn't sure it was a good idea. And being a rational person, he made a list of the pros and cons of marriage. It's a really embarrassing list. For starters, at one point he says a wife would be better than a dog anyway mm. to come home to. A very low bar. This is um, one, one can be thankful he wasn't test piloting this on Twitter because uh, yeah, he'd be done. We would not have had the origin <laughs> of species. Exactly, he'd be done. Yeah. It's a low bar even in the 19th century. But you know, it's it's it, so that part. There's a little bit of that's embarrassing when you look over the list, and it's a little bit disorganized. I reorganize it a bit in the book. When you look at it, the negatives of marriage are are both more numerous and more serious. The positives are things like someone to come home to, maybe companionship. The negatives are things like stuck with their relatives, socializing with them, the expenses of childbearing and childrearing, the tragedies of losing children to illness, won't have time to do your science, won't make an impact on the world. Uh, it seems like a no-brainer. When you look at the list, if someone brought this list to you and said, what do you think? You'd say, well, obvious choice, don't get married. You're going to, you risk not becoming one of the greatest scientists of all time in return, return for what he calls female chit chat, mm -hmm. another less than honorable uh, summary. So despite that, he then scribbles a, we have his journal, so we have this in his own hand. At the end, he writes this stream of consciousness narrative about how horrible it would be to, to, to be returning it alone to his dingy apartment at night. And all of his rational pro-con list falls apart. He just finally says, I'm going to marry, 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 exclamation point after each one, QED. 
that, you know, quadestemistratum, that, that which was to be proved. It's over. It's like a math proof. Got to get married. And there's a puzzle there. Why would the decision that he clearly favors in the sober light of day, which is to not marry because it, it's going to be likely not worth it to him. And, and, and by the way, Kafka makes the same list. Yeah. And he overwhelmingly decides it's also similar. It looks horrible. And so he doesn't get married. But Darwin does. And uh, I think it's about six months later, he marries his cousin, which is amusing mm-hmm. because it means that the relatives he's worried about are his own relatives. So anyway, why? W- what was he thinking? You know, the standard answer would be, well, he just made an emotional decision. He went with his gut. I don't think that's what's going on. When you look at his list, and if it would be true of anybody making such a list, and I actually opened the book with a conversation with a friend who was trying to decide whether to have a child, and he and his wife made a list of the pros and cons, and he told me after they made the list, they, they couldn't decide. There were so many pros and so many cons that were so seemingly evenly weighted. And certainly Darwin and my friend, I would suggest, don't know much about marriage or childbearing, childrearing, childraising. Certainly in the case of marriage, there's nothing in Darwin's list about love, sharing a journey through life together, the ups and downs of that emotional experience. He didn't have any access to it. How could he know about those things? Now, he could read novels. I don't know if he's a big reader of novels, but his married friends, if he had any, which he probably did, he could see them socializing. But most people who are married can't explain the specialness of staying with somebody for decades. They can't explain And by the way, it's not all rosy, of course. Certainly, you, you can't appreciate the upside. But there's also some, sometimes a very bad downside. All of that is veiled from most of us before we make a decision about whether to get married or not, or whether to have children, or whether to move to Israel, or whether to become a, a chemist rather than a lawyer or a poet. And so how do you think about that? I mean, how do you, when you confront that, and I think what Darwin confronted was, I see myself, I have always seen myself as a married person, mm-hmm. as a father. And so he, he took a leap. He married. He had many children. Tragically, some of them died. But he had a very good marriage most of the time. Towards the end, he had some issues with religion and his wife. His wife was very religious. But for most of their life, they had a, a blessed marriage, a wonderful marriage. And it, ironically, one of his favorite things, she did, I don't know if I mentioned this, he was worried they might have to leave London. What if she doesn't like London? Mm-hmm. She didn't like London. They had to move to the countryside. Turned out he liked it. He liked coming home or spending time with her at night, she would read to him. So many of the things that make marriage and a, and a shared life with another person special, he didn't know about, but something in him knew that it was worth making a leap over, even though it didn't appear to be a good choice. And I give many examples in the book of people who, from the world of science, math, very analytical areas, where these kind of decisions, they make what appears to be a ra- an irrational decision. And I would suggest it's not irrational, and neither are they making a decision with their gut. What they're doing is they're recognizing, as I think we all can and should and sometimes do, that these decisions are about more than just how happy will I be day to day with another person or with a child or living in a different place or in a different kind of career. Those are not the only things we care about. Those day-to-day concerns, which I call narrow utilitarianism, they're not irrelevant. They matter. They're what economists tend to focus on. They are only, though, part of the story. The rest of the story is the overarching narrative of our identity, our sense of self, of who we are, and, and, our, and the virtues of those, those identities, and who we could become, not just who we are now, 
you know, in the economist model, you have a set of preferences and uh, you try to get the most out of them. The idea that you might want to change your preferences, that they might be unattractive or immoral is rarely, it's not ever, hardly ever considered. But in real life, we should consider those things. We should consider who we want to be, who we want to become. And those choices we're talking about set us on those paths. And so it's about more than just the day-to-day pleasure or pain. I argue in the book, I don't know if you're married, Sam. I don't know if you have children. Yeah, both. I'm married. I have four children. It is very possible that the number of days as a parent that are positive are smaller than the number of days as a parent that are negative. There are a lot of bad days. Things go wrong with your kids. Mm. They have challenges. They have trauma. You can't help them. They are not just like you. They give you heartache, but they also give you joy. And they are amazing. And they give you a taste of what it's like for your own parents. They connect you to your own parents in ways that are unimaginable. They create a future for you you couldn't have otherwise. They're not, it's not for everyone. It might not even be a good idea for everyone. It's, it's certainly not. But it's not just about the, the number of good days versus the number of bad days. There's so much mm. more at stake there. And I think people realize that. Okay. Well, as much as I wanted to hover above it, I'm feeling the gravity of the issues you have with consequentialism pulling us inward. So <laughs> there was a lot in there. Before we truly slip over the event horizon, maybe I just want to ask you about a tool. I think this is a, you know, properly in the economics toolkit. I, I learned it in um, the engineering economic systems department when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. Actually, you, you say you taught at Stanford. What years were you there? I was there uh, 85 to 87. Okay. So, and yeah. then a lot of summers uh, visiting. Interesting. In, that's exactly in, when I was there. That's when, that's when I was a, a freshman in 85. Huh. Take any economics? So, so I took it. So did, you know, uh, did you know Ron Howard? Uh, it's funny you mention Ron Howard. I, I had a story from my book that I didn't get into the book, but uh, he has some very, very... Uh, I heard a story about him from one of his students that I almost put in the book. I could share it if you want. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Cut it if you want. Yeah. So part of my book is about certainty and our desire for certainty. And that's the power of an algorithm, an equation, an app. It tells us what to do. And then, then I'll, I'll, get, I'll make the best decision. We, we have such a craving for that. Uncertainty makes us uneasy. And somebody told me a story about Ron Howard that I thought was really extraordinary, which was, I heard the story from the student. I contacted Professor Howard, and he gave me his version. Mm-hmm. And I don't, what I'm going to give you now is some might be one or the other or a mix, but the, the point is the same in both of them, which is that on his exams, with each question that you answered, you had to assign a probability that you were right. Mm-hmm. And if you, the higher the probability that you assigned to a question that you got right, the more points you got. And the, lower the, pro, the higher the probability to, that you assigned to a question you got wrong, you'd lose points. And he told people, he said, don't put 100% certainty next to any answer. Because if you put 100%, that you're 100% certain, and Mm -hmm. it's wrong, you will get a score of negative infinity. (laughs) And negative infinity cannot be outweighed by your score on the final. If your midterm's a negative infinity, (laughs) you fail the class. So that was the story. So he gives the exam, and some people, I don't know how many, put 100% on a question that they got wrong. And their lives were, who knows what happened to them. You know, I, I, I don't know how, how much he, he actually enforced it. He did tell me that 
that at some places where he taught, they didn't allow it. They found it cruel to give students, mm-hmm. confront them with this, this decision. It hardly seems cruel to me. And, and what's powerful about it, of course, is that this student who told me the story had had the class 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it says, I've never forgotten that because it, it, it taught me that you should never be 100% certain about anything. And that is, I believe, a very, very deep lesson in life and very, very useful to be aware that some uncertainty cannot be resolved. Certainly, you're not, shouldn't be 100% sure of anything. And uh, so that's my Ron Howard story. But I I never knew him when I was at Stanford. Oh, oh, yeah, it was too bad. He he was, he's really, um, I I have lost touch with him mostly, although I I did interview him for my book, Line, maybe, um, I don't know, six or seven years ago. But uh, yeah, he had a great, effect on me ethically more than anything else because he taught this course that he called the ethical analyst i think it was a graduate seminar but it was just a an investigation there's a conversation among you know 10 or 12 of us for a quarter about whether or not it's ever ethical to lie right and and you you very quickly push past the the anne frank scenario and then you're you're talking about white lies really for the rest of the course and you know i, I I and I, it really seemed virtually everyone else in that class came out of the black box of that course. It really changed with respect to the ethics of lying. And I, and I wrote a short book titled Lying that was really my version of what I learned when I was 18 in that class. But he also taught and really pioneered this area of, um, I don't know what it's considered now, if it's operations research or, or I don't know you know where you find it on the shelf, but it's called decision analysis. And it's a technique of integrating all the information one has about a decision and all of one's you know, probabilistic intuitions in a systematic way so that you can make a what purports to be a more rational decision than just doing what Darwin did with a, you know, the pros over here and the and the cons over there. And you sort of stare at your piece of parchment, in his case, for a while, and then you throw up your hands and you make a a gut decision, integrating everything you've been ruminating over. So what Howard purported to be able to do, and and you know the experience of using the tool, I almost never do it, but you know back in the day when I was studying it and trying to apply it to my life, it did seem better than just the pros and cons. It seemed like it allowed you to systematize your your intuitions, and especially uh, he demonstrated this a lot in class that we're we're far better at making probabilistic judgments than we think we are. You know, like if you ask a class of undergraduates, you know, how many you know, McDonald's franchises are there on Earth at the moment, and you get a, I mean, certainly you see something like the wisdom of the crowd if you aggregate those guesses. But most people are pretty good. I mean, they're not orders of magnitude off. And it's true for probabilistic judgments about things that are going to happen in the future. And you can get better at doing that. So I guess this is a long way. And I actually don't remember whether Ron did that on on any of the tests I took for him. But that's a very Ron thing to have done with um, infinite negative outcome. But uh, it was an experience of feeling like we could in some perfect world get better at aggregating our complete state of information. And thinking about this from the other side, as a counterpoint to what you just suggested, I mean, what, what else do we have to go on but 
the totality of information we have and think we have about the you know, what's likely to happen on the basis of taking one path or another. And couldn't we, at the end of the day, also build into our forward-looking model of what's likely to happen the probability that we'll be changed by the decision itself? And this is a topic I want to explore with you. That just as you point out, certain decisions change us. So, like, so what's so silly about Darwin's list is that he's so completely blind to this prospect and really this certainty that you know once you're married, things are going to seem different. You know, you're just you're not able in this list to value things the way you will value them once you have this wife you love, right? And so, um, anyway, I, I gave you a lot there, but what? What do you think about decision analysis or some other as yet uninvented tool for uh, leveraging our, our rationality more than, than we do at present? I think about emails I get, ads that pop up on my web pages about try this. This is the path to being more productive. This is the path to being more fit. The seven minute workout. Mm. You ever click on the seven-minute workout, Sam? Yeah, yeah. You ever look I, I've at seen, it? I've uh, seen that, that was that was popularized by the New York Times. Yeah, yeah I tried it for a while. Separated my shoulder <laughs> doing one of the dips on my piano bench. It was a mistake. But the bigger mistake was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if there were a seven-minute workout and I wouldn't have to really like work? And studies show that the seven minutes are enough. I'm sure somewhere there might even be peer-reviewed. There's data and evidence that shows that it's true. Uh, I think, so there's a lot of things to say to what you said. Uh, I'm not sure I'll remember everything I want mm -hmm. to comment on, but I'd start with the fact that our brains don't always process things so well, and we often look for the easy way out or the thing that we already have decided, but we tell ourselves a story, you know, the narrative fallacy, and we will find data <laughs> to convince us that we made the right decision, and we'll ignore the data that's on the other side, and I think being aware that's very powerful. Having said that, Use data when you can. I'm not anti-data. Uh, I'm not anti-pro-conless. It's a good idea. It's just that the point of Darwin's story is that if you are not careful, you will leave out some of the most important things. If you have a really good decision-making process and you remember those things and you seek counsel, which is always a good idea, mm. ask a friend who you trust and who can be honest with you to think about, help you think about what should be thought about. That's very powerful. It's not unimportant. And then perhaps to even think about how you ought to weigh the different things. But I think the other part that I comment on is that the idea that I can imagine what my life will be like in the future as a, as a married person or as a parent or as a resident of a different place or in a different kind of career, that's an illusion. That's, that's not like, well, I'll do the best I can. No, it's an illusion. You can't get very good at it. And here's the, the other hard point. The things that will come to mind are often the things that are, that are more tangible, and the intangible things are going to be hard to remember. That's one good reason why you should seek counsel. Certainly, a, a good friend can help you think of those, mm. those intangible things. But at the root of part of the critique that I'm trying to make in the book, which ha has a critique of economics under, under the surface, is pointing out that many pleasures are not commensurate. Uh, and to think that I can tot them up, I can just pile them up and then subtract away the pains ignores the fact that there are certain issues where that's not the right calculus. You know, this, this really raises, rears its head in, in ethical decisions or in decisions of commitment, right? How should I treat my spouse? 
Should I treat my wife uh, when I'm thinking about my obligations? Should I think, well, you know, what can I get away with to be as happy as possible? It's tempting, right? And it's, it's a natural impulse. We're hardwired, very much hardwired to look for ways to take advantage of our spouses, our friends, to do what helps us and not have to make sacrifices to free ride on their efforts. And what works in the other direction? Uh, well, loyalty, love, commitment, uh, honor, ethics, religion. There's a bunch of things. But for many of us, those things are weak. And so would you argue that you know, the best marriage for you, not for your, the two of you, but for you, is to see how much you can get away with in terms of the daily responsibilities of carpooling and dishes and cooking and cleaning and filling out the taxes. And, you know, maybe your wife won't notice. I mean, we all understand that's despicable. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not an honorable path, but it's also, it's, there's nothing attractive about it. And we'd argue that that's wrong. It's just wrong. But why is it wrong? I mean, seems like, isn't that what we do through all most of our life? We look for advantages. We look for a chance to get ahead. We look for what makes me as happy as possible. But we have to also understand that sometimes that's just wrong and we shouldn't do those things. But they're, they're hard to do. So how do you, should you do a cost-benefit analysis and then, you know, on your deathbed realize you've been a horrible person, even though you're really happy? Right? I think that's horrifying. I, I think most of us recoil at the thought of that. So I don't think... I think the standard decision-making analysis, if you're not careful, leaves out ethical considerations, shared experiences that are often complicated. It leaves out the incommensurability of certain pleasures over others. You can't just add them up. Mm. And for me, part of my goal in this book is to help people recognize there's no right decision. There's no best decision. I think this is really hard for people when it comes to marriage. You know, who to marry, not whether to marry, but who to marry. Uh, you know, I want to find the best possible spouse, like a car. I want to find the car that's best for me. Yeah, so I get on, fill out a little questionnaire. How many children do you have? Do you like to drive fast? And I found out my, the best car for me is a two-seater. That, that's not what a spouse is. It's a different kind of decision. For figuring out which car is going to give you the most pleasure, sure. If it doesn't have a back seat, you understand what you're giving up. If it, it's a minivan, you understand what you're giving up. But when it's a spouse, a particular person, a woman of that one, what are you giving up? Well, you could find a nicer one. You could find a smarter one. You could find a prettier one. You could find a more exciting one. You know, you name it. So did, is it always a mistake? How should you think about that? It's not, it's not easy to think about what the rational decision is to make in that context. So I'm not saying, oh, then flip a coin or do whatever you do. Just choose randomly, close your eyes. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you're going to make a rational decision in these kind of areas that, like you do with what kind of car to buy? Well, maybe this is a good place to invoke Herb Simon's concept of satisficing, because that is that gets at what we do instead of arriving at some pinnacle of of rationality where we know that we've we, we've surveyed all of the counterfactual landscape and we know we can know we've made the right decision, right? I guess maybe we should also talk about how you think about counterfactuals here, or whether and to what degree you do. Yeah, you know, I use, uh, there are some charming mathematical models of, of marriage and I'm sure many other complicated aspects of life and they're cute and clever, and, but I think they're a little bit dangerous. You know, Alain de Botton said it, said it best, you will marry the, the wrong person. Mm. <laughs> and it, he, 
And of course, sometimes it's literally true. He meant it a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, sometimes you will literally marry the wrong person, a person who brings out the worst in you, a person who not only doesn't float your boat, but crashes you on the rocks. That we make sometimes terrible mistakes when we make these face these wild problems. But he meant something a little more whimsical, which is that you know, the best person is not what you should be seeking. And again, I would just point out the human urge that I think many of us have, partly because of our experience in other areas, but partly just maybe because it's the way we're wired to find the best. It's a very natural idea. I, I don't think, I, I say in the book, it's not a question of settling. Oh, I'll just settle for this one. You have to settle. If you think about it for a minute, you realize that you're not going to survey the entire counterfactual landscape. Even if you did, even if you literally could imagine all the possible spouses in the world for you, partners, most of them won't take you. <laughs> and most of them, you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And I didn't quote this in the book. A friend of mine says, uh, his father taught him that he said, until you get married, you're an idiot. And I certainly feel some truth to that statement. You know, when you're, when you're young, unmarried, never shared a life with someone, and you imagine what it's going to be like, you can spend all your days on that counterfactual, but you're kind of wasting your time. You, you, you can't imagine both the up and downside, by mm. the way. It's not just the upside. I do argue in the book that a lot of these decisions, the downside is obvious and the upside is less so. Yeah. You know, I, I give the example from Tom Chiver's book of the, the woman who wears a robot baby so she can find out what it's like to be a mother. Right, right. And the baby cries and gets a dirty diaper, I guess, and you got to feed it. Well, that's the downside for most of us of, of children. Uh, if we're lucky, that's the downside. It can be worse. But that's one of the hard, those are some of the hard parts, waking up in the middle of the night, et cetera. The upside is very, very hard to explain, and it's hard to put into words, even if you're an eloquent person, and so you're going to neglect that. And most of us don't have children for rational reasons, or so-called rational reasons, the cost-benefit kind of reasons. We have children because we think, like Darwin, we think it's something I think I want to experience in life. It's something I think I should do, or it's traditional. Of course, we live in a day when it's less so. A lot of people now view it as a choice. It wasn't a choice until... Recently, most of the time through human history, people had children because, of course, they would have children. It's not even a question. And now it's a question. So if you're thinking about that question, you will see the downsides. You'll see your friends with children not going on interesting vacations. You'll see them looking tired and dragging around because they didn't sleep well. You'll see them driving that horrible minivan that's uh, boxy and ugly. And uh, you'll see them going to soccer games, as I argue in the book, yelling to Three foot tall creatures don't bunch up. Mm -hmm. Well, that does not look like a joyous life. It looks like hell. But the positive, there is an upside to children, and it's not easily seen until you have them. Mm. And I think that's just important to keep in mind. He also just put this on the, the more limits to rationality side of the ledger. As far as I know, it's been a while since I've looked at the research, but last I looked, all of the Psychological research on parenthood suggests that nothing reliably diminishes people's subjective sense of their own well-being more than having children, and people tend not to recover until they're empty nesters and have their time fully restored to them. You're probably familiar with Dan Gilbert's work and the other behavioral economists who have looked at this. I don't know if there there are caveats to that, but I just remember Dan presenting various graphs of people's um, reported 
well-being. And you get two things from him. One is we're impressively bad at predicting how good or bad certain experiences are going to be in the end. You know, so when, when we think of a really bad experience like becoming paralyzed or a really good experience like you know, winning the lottery or getting some great new job, we tend to overestimate the effect it'll have on our well-being and what seems to have been established from psychological science, one hope that replicates, is that we, most of us have a, a set point of sorts that we return to even after major displacements to the good or to the bad that life throws at us. So there's that, but then there's just this very long displacement that some researchers have detected in among parents who have a fairly long slog to get back to the moment where their time is truly their own. I think we both would agree that those data don't capture everything that's good about being a parent. And, and to some degree, we have you know, Danny Kahneman's two selves to credit here with our confusion. I mean, the, the experiencing self who can be surveyed moment to moment with a kind of an experience sampling technique. I, you know, I send you a, a notification you know, 17 mm-hmm. times a day, and you just have to give me a number rating your subjective well-being uh, versus the remembering self, who's the one I talk to when I ask you, well, so how good is your life, you know, globally speaking, and you give me a story about how satisfied you are. Those two, you know, impressively break apart. You know, un- unlike Danny, I have some hopes that we can actually truly integrate them in our thinking about human flourishing. Uh, he he really has given up on that project. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm wondering what what is missing from that picture in your view? Perhaps we can use parenting as the kind of clinical case study here. If we can't really capture all the, the relevant data in data, and by just asking people, people who have gone before us into that wilderness, just how good or bad is it? Because they are reporting back, how can someone make the decision? And how can they be, how is it anything less than an irrational gut decision or just a, a conformity to you know, what everyone is, you know, the norms that are, that are on display around them? You know, in, if we really understood human flourishing better than we do, and we were wiser than we are, and all of this was moving in the right direction, what kind of conversation do you think we'd be having a hundred years from now about how to decide to become a parent? Well, I'm not sure we've made much progress on human flourishing. It's not exactly your question, but yeah. I don't think it's unrelated. I, I think as individuals, we make progress. I feel I have a better understanding of myself and what I care about at 68 than I did when I was 16. Mm-hmm. But I doubt I'm much, that much ahead of somebody who lived in Hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, I don't. You know, we haven't changed our urges and imperfections, our flaws, our biases, cognitive shortcomings. They haven't changed at all. And I think what happens is, if you're lucky, as you get older, and you, if you're lucky, you become a little more thoughtful. You start to become aware of how these shortcomings, flaws, biases, urges control you, and you start thinking about what you might do to control yourself in a different way. To shoot thought a lot about, I know, to be more mindful mm-hmm. of, of what you're doing with your life. And well, Not to derail you, Russ, but uh, that's just too tantalizing and pessimistic to leave aside. 
So you don't think we've made a ton of progress collectively in our ethical intuitions and, and the norms that enshrine them and force people, you know, each next generation to, to share these intuitions? And we, have, we, know, we now have intuitions about, say, a practice like slavery, right? Or, you know, cat burning apparently was, was a, a great pastime in, I don't know, I think it was 15th century France or 14th century France, right? I, I think Steven Pinker opens one of his bright and optimistic books with this mm-hmm. example of, you know, it, it used to be that the genteel people of Paris would love to see a bunch of cats put in a sack and lit on fire, right? We recoil from that now, and I think we think we're right to, and we have a story about compassion and uh, the very real suffering of, of, in this case, animals, or in, in the case of slavery, other people just like ourselves uh, who can now be recognized as such, but weren't recognized to be proper people a mere 150 years ago by many people, and still aren't recognized, actually, in certain pockets of humanity. So doesn't that all look like real progress to you? Not really. You want me to give it a go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, there's definitely progress, at least it appears to be, right? I'm pretty confident there's certain things that we now recoil at that we should recoil at, and it would have been a better world if people had recoiled at them sooner. The challenge is, is that it's, you know, picking out uh, cat burning, it's, you got to look at the whole picture. I mean, that's, that's a plus that we don't do cat burning, or at least if you do do cat burning, you're looked down on by certain people. It seems like a step in the right direction. Here's what I would think about on the other side. I would remember Chuck Klosterman's point, but what if we're wrong, that many things that, that we think of as civilized and normal, people in different ages thought were civilized and normal, and turns out they were wrong. <laughs> they weren't nice. Slavery, of course, was justified and was thought of as beneficial for the, the inferior people. That was wrong. That was a terrible mistake. But it could be that there are certain intuitions we have that we think are obviously true, could, might not be true. I think cat burning would not be one of them. I think that probably is the right thing. I'm pretty confident. Not 100% being an indirect student of Ron Howard, 99.999. I'm pretty confident that's a step in the right direction. But what about the things that are really awful in like the gulag or the Holocaust? These were in the 20th century. I mean, you're looking back at you're looking back at Paris in 1500 and saying, "Ha ha, those heathens." Well, it's 80 years ago, in the most civilized places on the on the face of the earth, Germany, the most educated places on the face of the earth, they thought it was not just useful to kill Jews, but morally correct. What happened there? Now you could say, "Well, we got we finally figured that one out." It took a mm-hmm. while. It was true. 1933 in Germany, it, it did it did. We struggled with it. Uh, it's kind of hard to, I think it's hard to make that argument. I think there's a darkness in the heart of the human creature that is not easily extinguished. I think we're seeing that now. We're looking at the state of discourse in the United States and other countries around the world. It looks a lot less civilized than it was. So I certainly agree that there are things that have gotten better, but in a certain sense, even a more fundamental question of, of the day-to-day life, we started this talking about flourishing. So yes, some moral intuitions are, are we've made progress on. But do you think we've really gotten better at discovering what a meaningful life is? Do you think we know more than Marcus Aurelius or the author of um, Ecclesiastes or Homer or Faulkner or Shakespeare? I mean, has things really changed? I think not so much. Mm. 
That would be my view. You want to push back? Give me a more optimistic story? Well, I, I think there is ground that gets conquered by culture that we don't have to continually reconquer. Or, or if we do have to reconquer it, all the work is done for us, right? So we, we can do it very quickly, right? So it doesn't take us, I would share your view of the Holocaust, but the reason why... Going out in a limb, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I would add that the, the reason why we can so clearly condemn it without burning really any intellectual fuel at this point, I think we, would, we might still be hard-pressed to do anything like persuade a real you know, neo-Nazi who is was probably convinced both it didn't happen but should have. Yeah, right. A good idea. But you know, the failures of persuasion aside, I think the better part of humanity it has gotten better and better at you know what Peter Singer describes as extending the moral circle, right? So that it's just we 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 recognize more and more of us more of the time recognize with less and less effort that caring about the suffering of distant strangers is part of what it means to be a good person and to live a, an examined life at this point, right? You can't be a good person and declare to you know, everyone in your circle that you really don't care about anyone you don't know personally. So if you hear about a child being thrown into a wood chipper by his maniac parents, you don't care because you know, it's not your child, you don't know, you don't know his or her name, that problem doesn't concern you, right? No, you're, you're going to be horrified, and your horror may degrade some with distance, but you, you'll be horrified even if it's over in Africa or India or someplace you haven't been among people whose culture you don't understand and whose language you don't speak. And that, that I think we've gotten better and better at. I mean, I, I think that the problem that you know, Adam Smith pointed out still is there, that our concern across those ever-widening circles degrades so precipitously that it's true to say that you, you tell a man that an earthquake swallowed a generation of people in China, you, you might think about it, it might trouble you for some time, but you tell that same man that he's going to lose the tip of his pinky finger tomorrow uh, in some necessary surgery, that will consume him you know, every, every moment of the day and, and night until it happens. So there's a mismatch there, but I think more and more people, and this is what education is for, right? Insofar as people are actually educated, and, and this is what the humanities are for, right? They're, they're part of a larger conversation about moral norms. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we have to, I think we, with something like real alacrity, every present generation of human beings can recognize that a tribal genocide based on conspiracy theories and uh, notions of you know, the, the purity of German blood, this is not a good thing, and we need not re revisit all the arguments as to why. And so it is with slavery and cat burning and, and all the rest. But as to your, I think, the, the steeper challenge you posed as to whether many people are as wise or wiser than Marcus Aurelius, in any generation, I would say no. I mean, you know, he, he's in the 99th percentile in any present generation. But uh, I think culture, the culture around normal people and, and the norms enshrined there can embody his wisdom more and more. And I think it is. I think we probably 
I would be inconvenienced by looking at Twitter today and having to defend you know people's the moral panics on display there. But I think the general trend is still discernible, and I think we're. I know you have your doubts about effective altruism, but this is one of the things that I think the center of the fairway of effective altruism is actually bringing to the conversation about philanthropy and and ethics. There are kind of outlier bits of weirdness, and you know I think the the movement does still suffer from its its online roots to some degree, but. And that's why I can't just declare that I'm an effective altruist, you know, capital E, capital A. But, you know, insofar as my conversations with Will McCaskill and other effective altruists have, have changed my approach to doing good in the world, I, I do think that some of the epiphanies there are durable gains in just in a conception of, of how to mitigate human suffering and to get just how we can get better at that and how getting better at that actually matters. I used to think that. <laughs> um, I, I, I think you said, first, I, I want to I commend you for your summary of the Adam Smith story, which uh, the earthquake versus the little finger, you said it beautifully. Smith's lesson about that, by the way, is that this leads to a puzzle. If you indeed care more about your little finger than you do about the deaths of millions of people very far away, and then we're offered a chance to save your little finger by killing millions of people, you would be horrified. Yeah, yeah. And yet your moral intuition, not your moral, your emotional intuition is that you care more about your finger than those people, so why wouldn't you kill them? And that's really the starting, the jumping off point for why we do anything nice. So I love that. And I think your point about the fairway of, of effective altruism rather than the center of the fairway rather than the, uh, say, the rough <laughs> yep. uh, side of the fairway is, is, a good, is a good point. I have a lot of respect for the effective altruism movement. I think the idea that our money should, our charitable money should cause good in the world rather than just make us feel better about ourselves is a deep and important idea. I think it's the, the devil's in the details, unfortunately. You know, spending enormous amounts of money on deworming because that's the most powerful use of your money may turn out to have been literally wrong. The data and the studies on it are, are quite complicated. When deworming was the rage, people gave lots of money to deworming causes because these are for poor children in Africa, typically, on the grounds that science showed that this helped them. But the science is complicated. It's not clear it replicates, not clear it scales. Still an open question. There's arguments on both sides, but it's more complicated than the initial proponents claimed or suggested. And again, it's an example of what I'm talking about, which is often not that, oh, well, you shouldn't care about, you should try to study what your money will do. It's just too complicated. No, you should mm. care. You should care a lot. It should be the main thing you care about. And you should recognize how hard it is to do good in the world because it's very hard to do good for others. It's even hard to do good for yourself. We know that we struggle with, as human beings, we struggle with that. We often make decisions that harm ourselves. At, at any rate, I certainly have many positive things to say about effective altruism, but I think the, I think that, I, I, I don't want to, I know this is not exactly what you're arguing, but I think it's useful to be aware of the potential to make the kind of argument that you seem to be making, which is that morals are like technology. Culture is like technology. It's ironic that I'm saying that. I'm a big fan of the work of F.A. Hayek, the economist, who was mm -hmm. very interested in, in the emergent and evolutionary nature of culture. 
and its ability in competition with other cultures to be refined and improved, just as technology is improved and refined via competition. But I think there's a temptation, if we look at human history, say, going back to Marcus Aurelius, to say, well, everything keeps getting better because it builds the knowledge base, gets it larger and larger. Our technologies, our literal technologies, our techne, our crafts, our, our understanding of, of manufacturing, they keep growing. We, they've become extraordinary in the last hundred years, and we can now f- go faster, and we can connect to each other, and we have the extraordinary interactive power of the web to share things with other people, and, and that all of life is like this. But I don't think all of life is like that. Just to take one example, if you look at the evolution of the United States uh, from, from its founding, okay, it's got a mixed bag at the beginning. A bunch of people who are slave owners arguing that, um, that all men are created equal and that it's men rather more, certainly more than women. There's a certain hypocrisy at the root of it, but that hypocrisy is, as you implicitly argued, and it's not exactly what you're talking about, that hypocrisy became a weapon to move forward and make progress. Mm. We weren't living up to our ideals. So we, had, we had something to be held accountable for. And I think in the United States, that was extraordinary. It, it had a tragic resolution. The tragic resolution is that, is that it led, you know, the Civil War was horrifyingly bloody, but it achieved something extraordinarily glorious. The, the end of slavery, not the freedom for Africans who had been brought here under those horrible circumstances, but the trend's very positive. You can't ignore the trend. You can't say there's no progress. There is progress. There's progress in, in race relations. There's, there's progress in tolerance of sexual differences. There's, and there's progress that's material progress. And that's the essence of, of, I think, Pinker's story. And it's also the essence of part of what I think is undeniably true that you're, that you're arguing for. But look at what's happening, just to take one example, with freedom of speech. Here's a principle that you'd think I mean, it wasn't a principle. The First Amendment enshrines it. Of course, even when it was enshrined in the Constitution, it wasn't necessarily, it would have been agreed on in a majority vote by the citizens of the Republic, male, female, black, white, or whatever. But as you would argue, I think right-thinking people understood that it was a bedrock principle that people had to respect. We're moving in the other direction at a frightening pace. In the places where it should be most revered, Mm. college campuses, for example, it's disturbing. Now, is it a temporary thing? Will it swing back? I hope so. But I I think it's hard, unlike technology or material progress, I don't think that the path is so obviously for the better. And, um, you know, Nazi Germany, communist Russia... Who knows? I don't want to pick particular countries. There's some obvious choices in today's world of places where the life is very dark and, and, and bitter and brutal for thousands, if not millions of people. There's lots of disturbing things. I think I'd like to believe that the process is going to help us move forward. I used to believe that about the United States. So, oh, yes, we'll muddle through. We'll figure it out. Mm. I'm not so sure. The, the things that made me optimistic there before don't make me, I'm not as optimistic as I used to be. So I don't, I don't want to overstate my pessimism. I don't want to disagree with you. Certainly many of the things you say are true. There is cultural progress of various kinds. I worry there's lots of cultural backsliding and um, hmm. I'm not sure we're always, we're ever going to be uh, 
as um, civilized as we like to think we are. You know, the veneer, I like to say the veneer of civilization is thin. Maybe I'm overly pessimistic. Yeah, well, no, I think that part is true because when you strip off the veneer, you are dealing with apes. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. like we're, exactly. we're um, you know, it's hard to be idealistic down to your toes about <laughs> some of these questions. But I, I do think we, we notice the slippage by reference to the, the gains we've made. And I, so I share your concern about freedom of speech. I mean, many people have accused me of being hostile to free speech, given a few things I've said about social media. I think that all of these critics have things upside down. But what I would acknowledge here is that it's the birth of certain technologies, in particular social media, even the, the internet more generally, has put forward certain conundrums because, you know, speech is, the, the significance of speech is becoming something new now, right? I mean, and, and the, yeah. the boundaries between legitimate differences of opinion and you know, legitimate journalism and dangerous conspiracy thinking that is achieving, you know, algorithmic scale based on a disastrous business model uh, and actually having real political effects and, you know, indelible effects or, or seemingly indelible effects. What to do about all that is a, is a genuine social problem. And you know, just banging on about how everyone should be free to say anything they want, whenever they want, however they want, that's not a remedy. I mean, I just, you know, I fear that, I mean, I wasn't planning to go down this rabbit hole, but maybe, maybe uh, you have a difference of opinion on some of this. So it'd be, it might be interesting to explore. No, I, uh, I was going to go ahead. Yeah, I was just so, so like, just take the specific case of, you know, deplatforming someone like Alex Jones from Twitter or even Donald Trump from Twitter. There are many people who think that Twitter is now some version of the public square and to deplatform anyone is to violate their First Amendment rights. That can't be true. I mean, the violation of First Amendment rights is, is something that governments do, right? So it's when I look at the, this situation, and admittedly, it's a difficult one, but I, I take the company's eye view of this, and I, I think of the, the First Amendment rights of the people who started Twitter and the people who are on Twitter's board and the people who are running it, and they have a, some vision of what they want the company to be. And the question is, should the government force them to platform someone like Alex Jones, who's you know running rampant on their service and causing his mob to dox the grieving parents of the Sandy Hook kids who were murdered and uh, you know, they're, they're now Sandy Hook parents who have had to move 10 times in order to escape the lunatic attention of a, a mob of powerfully misinformed people. So the question is, what, what should Twitter do in light of all of that misbehavior? Well, in my view, they should be as free to not have Alex Jones on their platform as I am free not to platform him on my podcast, right? I wouldn't want to live in a world where the government would force me to have him as a guest on my podcast just because I haven't shown sufficient balance in talking to maniacs. But there are many people who see it the other way, and I, I get how they get there, And because it is inconvenient to suddenly discover that your, your Twitter account has been abolished by some you know blue-haired, woke millennial who thought that you took the wrong side of the trans activist shibboleth or whatever it was. So I, I get that it's messy, but it is something that I, I 
completely share your view of what's happened on college campuses. And, you know, I've had dear friends, uh, actually, you're, you're uh, I think a, a fellow Hoover fellow at this point, uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, deplatformed, uh, you know, disinvited from Brandeis based on, on again, the witch-burning kind of moral panic we're seeing. So, yeah, it's messy. But again, I just think that all of the the mess is being is salient based on our on the progress we have made and our expectations of not losing that progress right and and are trying to figure out how to secure you know in this case free speech as the wonderful corrective mechanism it is on our thinking and on our culture i mean we just we need to be able to discuss ideas good and bad because their discussion is the only reliable way to detect errors and to move forward. And yet we, ha- we have to figure out how to respond to something like QAnon, right, which is emerging at scale on social media. And we've got a former president of the United States giving it oxygen explicitly now. And the question is what to do about that and how you know, is, is that, are there cases where preventing, you know, some kind of politically evil singularity from forming is in tension with our default algorithm of just privileging free speech everywhere all at once as fast as we can. And I just think these are interesting political and ethical questions. But it only looks as messy as it does because we're all living with with the expectations of having not to fight these battles again, right? We know how important free speech is, or we should know it. And every, certainly everyone in the Ivy League should damn well know it and not be kicking people off the dais for saying something truly anodyne in almost every case, but, but which is perceived as uh, hate speech, of all things. Well, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think I would add a couple things. I would add that the norms that govern behavior in all kinds of different settings, restaurants, your living room, a podcast, there's certain norms. The norms that we have right now for social media are not very healthy. Now, they may change without legal remedies. We might not need legal remedies. They might change on their own. They will change. I'm pretty confident of that. And I think the problem with your, your view, which is the view I certainly have held most of my life, that corporate speech is different than like just exactly what you said. You know, I'm not obligated to have people on my podcast. I'm allowed to edit comments on my podcast or on my blog. Mm. Uh, That's not censorship. Censorship is when the government, using the power of the state and the power of locking people up in jail, curtail thinking, curtail commenting, curtail speech. So I think that's true. That's the part I agree with. The part I have trouble with, and this is hard for me because it strikes at an old dogma of mine, but I've, I've come to challenge it. Is you know a lot of the benefits of those kind of things that we that you and I agree on come from competition. We believe, I suspect, I believe, I suspect you do too, that the marketplace for ideas is a isn't just a free for all. That over time, the better ideas will rise, and um, the things that have evidence behind them will will win the day. And competition is our best way of making sure that we don't miss out on ideas that might otherwise be hidden away or lost. That's the whole idea behind journalism in the modern world. Not journalism in 1775 was a very different kind of animal, but certainly the craft of journalism and the norms of journalism 
1970 or 1980 were imperfectly observed. But as you point out, I think it's a great point, and I agree with it. I was making a, a related point about the principles of the founding of the United States. At least we had something to hold people accountable to. Sure, it was imperfect. Sure, people had prejudices on both sides of the ideological fence. But we understood what the goal was. The goal was to be objective in the case of journalism. And the goal of, of free speech is to allow the interplay of ideas. Uh, John Stuart Mill said it brilliantly uh, roughly 200 years ago. It's, um, it's how we learn. It's how truth emerges. Otherwise, we're just pretending. So I agree with all that. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that underlying all that is a naive belief that I used to have. Maybe you still have, maybe you don't. I don't know. It doesn't matter that people care about the truth. Uh, I used to think that. I, see, I think I do, mm. and I may be fooling myself. But I'm now pretty confident that whatever number of people actually do care about the truth, it, it's not a high number. <laughs> it's not 97%. It, it's a small number. What we mainly often care about is comfort, is consuming views that make us feel good about ourselves, make us feel better than other people, all the flaws that you know, I was alluding mm. to earlier in human nature. And the problem I have with social media isn't that Twitter, I mean, I think it's horrible that people like Alex Jones do what they do. You know, the, the flip side, of course, is that Twitter, I think, incorrectly censors medical information about COVID. There's mm. a very particular view about what that should be. Yep. It's a good motive. I think it's poorly done. And I think we have lots to learn about COVID that has been hampered somewhat by that kind of restrictiveness. Not so much, but it could be. It's worrisome. But I think the deeper problem is that journalism in the United States, again, I don't know about the rest of the West, but probably most of the West, is dead. The journalism that we admired and respected, and, and at least the, the theoretical journalism of, of objective analysis is dead. Uh, it's been killed by social media. It's been killed by the need to get clicks and eyeballs and a standard competitive model. Here's one of the cases where economics is actually useful, Sam. The standard competitive model, things tend to go toward the center mm -hmm. for reasons not worth going into, but it's called the hoteling model, Harold Hoteling, an economist in the early part of the 20th century, had some very thoughtful insights about how things would tend toward the middle. That was the received wisdom, by the way, about the political process until about 25 years ago. And you, you'd hear it. It would be, you know, when it's in the primaries, you run to the extreme because your party is your party and you have to get their nomination. And as soon as the election is over, you run to the middle. Those days are over. You don't run to the middle after you get the nomination. You run back, you stay where you were. And you, in fact, you do everything you can to, to inflame and, and anger your, um, your base. You don't try to get the broad middle. And the broad middle is hardly reliable anymore. Everybody is out closer to the extremes. The analogy I give is to a restaurant. You know, and there's a couple of restaurants in town, they don't compete very hard. And they kind of tend to serve the same kind of food. In the 1950s, it was American food. It was meat and potatoes. Then suddenly, there's this explosion of competition in the food market. There's all this fabulous ethnic food, Thai, Chinese, vegan, Indian. And the world suddenly becomes much more interesting to be a diner. And you can go to a restaurant and you can go out on a Monday night and satisfy one type of person. On Tuesday night, you can do something different. And if you like variety, it's out there. And that's what's happened to the media world. The media mm. world now lets us satisfy all our preferences for crazy different kinds of food, except it's different kinds of truth. And as a result, a mainstream media platform that's trying to pursue the middle has no chance of survival. It's going to be picked off. Those people are going to be picked off 
by uh, the people at the extreme. So people think incorrectly, people think Fox News competes with MSNBC mm-hmm. or Fox News competes with CNN. It's not true. Fox News competes with Breitbart or whatever right-wing website is out there these days. I don't keep up. CNN's competition isn't Fox News. It's MSNBC that's satisfying the desires of its more radical base. And so what do we have? We have competition, which in most economic settings is is the lifeblood of improvement, progress, consumer protection, because people have choices. This is different. This is not so healthy. And we don't know how to handle it. And we don't have an economic model to fix it. We don't have a regulatory model to fix it. And uh, it's deeply disturbing. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. you know, coming back to our coming full circle now, it's really hard to argue that you can have an effective democracy without freedom of speech and a a press that's that's vigilant. And we're heading in the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah, well, I agree with all of that. I think I just I draw a a less categorical or, or categorically pessimistic lesson from it. I mean, I'm worried about precisely the same things there. And I, I think the, you know, the trend you describe and the balkanization of our epistemology by uh, the bad incentives uh, that are pressuring media, I mean, I think that's, that's all true. I just think we, we need to find a remedy for it. And I think, I think many people are dissatisfied with the status quo. I, I don't think they're I mean, I don't know if there, I'm sure there's something like polling research on this, but I would imagine that a vast majority, or at least a majority of us, are uncomfortable with the status quo. There are very few people who look out, no, no matter how hyper-partisan they might be, I, I can't imagine many of them look out on the, the media environment and say, yeah, this is, the, this is all working fine. Right. This is exactly how we people should be talking to each other. This is how we should be failing to converge on the most basic facts uh, that would inform any discussion about politics or anything else. So, I think everyone, however doctrinaire, is can probably agree, or you know, almost everyone can agree that things are a mess. Uh, the question is what to do about it. But I, I do think I, I, I would take issue with the claim that. People don't care about truth. I think you can just see them care about other things, and in many cases, they care about those things more, or they're deceived or self-deceived as to how their concern for truth is is interacting with the, with their other concerns. I mean, so you take even a a truly crazy social phenomenon like QAnon, right? You've got a bunch of people claiming to believe that. The world is increasingly run by child raping cannibals, and that people like Tom Hanks and Michelle Obama and and uh, you know other famous lefties are um, are among those cannibals, right? Hillary Clinton, you know, foremost among them. Now the question is, does anyone really believe that stuff? Are these pretensions to propositional knowledge about the world and about the behavior of other people, or is this just a weird? language ritual where everyone is professing these crazy claims but while not believing them you know maybe there's a you know wink wink nudge nudge none of us believe this shit going on but it's fun and it's organizing them into a kind of cult and it is a you know it's a shibboleth in the, in the ancient form right you're proving your membership in this cult by paying lip service to these incredible ideas maybe some of that's going on but 
I think in, in many, many cases, probably most cases, people believe something of the sort that they're professing. And I mean, this is, in some sense, a, we're seeing a new religion. Yeah, I, mean, I can't imagine it's going to be a long-lasting religion, but this has all the, the rudiments of, of religion for me. And I, I think you and I differ on, on questions of you know, the, the validity and importance of organized religion at this point in human history. But if you ask most Christians, I mean, do you really believe that Jesus was resurrected and will be coming back to earth to raise the dead? Most will profess to believe that. Now, the question, I think we could try to find some daylight between their actual beliefs and their professed beliefs, and I, I would imagine those exist, and we could, we could perform a, a Ron Howard-esque experiment here and, and get them to commit you know, real resources or skin in the game and just see what they do. But I, I still think no matter, no matter how much pressure you put on them, you would find that many, many, many people, and, and, in, and I think in most cases, you know, most people in these various groups, believe what they say they believe with a fairly high order of confidence because they're spending a lot of resources in the service of those beliefs and they're, and they're forsaking other opportunities to prop them up. And again, I, I would admit that not all of this is tracking truth claims because there are the, you know, there's the social reward and there's the blasphemy concerns and yeah. you know, what, what you know, no one wants to be tribalism. You know, no one wants to be defenestrated by their friends and family and all that. But still people care about what's true. And if you, if you can meet them on their own terms, right, if you can show them new knowledge that modifies to whatever degree that these cherished beliefs, you, you can often expose how scrupulous, in fact, they are being I mean, within the context of perverse assumptions and, and logic, right? If you get a young earth creationist talking about evolution, you know, within the frame of his worldview, once you buy into the genealogies in the Bible and add up all the lifetimes, and then you get to the Big Bang at you know, 4004 BC or whenever it is, once you do that, the game they're playing with, within those boundaries is rather rigorously rational, right? And they're, they're, they're concerned about self-contradiction, and they're concerned that they don't want to be wrong. And so there is a truth-seeking algorithm working even in weird places. And um, I would grant you, though, that it's confounded by other incentives. And Yeah. I'm going to disagree a little bit with that. I, I, I want to give a little bit of optimism, though, about social media. I, I do think it's a new technology, the internet, social media. There is reason to be hopeful that some norms will emerge about what is decent and what is acceptable that might make it better. And having said that, I love Twitter. I, mm. I, I find it deeply stimulating. I block people who are cruel and hateful. Not very many. I don't have to. I've blocked maybe fifteen people in my life. Hmm. I think it's fantastic. Lucky you. I've got a. I've got a different blocking routine. Yeah, you're you're bigger. (laughs) No, you're bigger fish than me, than I am. But it's. um, I love Twitter. Twitter's fantastic. Hmm. Uh, I understand it has costs out in the world that I don't participate in that I still have to cope with because of what it does to my fellow citizens. But there's a lot of potential there, and that's true of every one of these technologies, every one of these platforms, in their best guise, they are lovely. But 
it's complicated, on the care for the truth thing. It's a great point. I accept it. I think you're right. I think people do like to think that their views are consistent, but they don't spend a lot of time trying to shake their views. They don't spend a lot of time exploring where the studies that disagree with them are valid or not. Hmm. It's easy to dismiss them. I think there's a wonderful book, sort of wonderful. It's called Evil by Roy Baumeister. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever read it, yeah. but it, it opens with how much murderers like to think of themselves as decent people. And I think they do. I think he's right. I think yeah. a lot of truly wicked, evil people think well of themselves because they want to. You're right. They want to think that they're good people. They want to think they care about the truth. They make an effort to sustaining an intellectual framework that is, uh, is fairly consistent. The problem, of course, is that the inconsistencies are just ignored. And that's true on all sides, almost all issues. It doesn't mean anything goes. It doesn't mean nobody's right. It doesn't mean you can't make any progress. I think, it's, I think there are many things we can rule out that we have learned about the world. But when you step aside from flat earthers and QAnon and those folks and you ask questions about public policy, like whether the minimum wage is a good idea or whether we should be, have a universal basic income or even more basic questions about how I ought to treat you if I'm trying to get on the subway before you are, those are harder. And mm. uh, we've made less progress on those, I'd argue. Mm. Now I'm uh, looking in um, a combination of awe and horror at the list of topics I wanted to touch with you and, and, <laughs> and how much more there is to talk about. So I think we're going to have to do a round keep two going. someday. Just keep going. There's just yeah. too much. <laughs> but I, I think we, let's talk about the foundations of all of this, which is how we can make judgments about life being good or, or less good than it should be, and how we can integrate our uh, notions of human flourishing into a rational discussion of ethics and, and mor you know, moral truth. I think we arrive at these, the same conclusion from different roots here, but I think we're both, to some degree, realists with respect to moral truth, which is to say, I, we think that there are right and wrong answers to questions of good and evil, and it's possible for everyone to be wrong about them, right? Or in any given room, you know, you can get 10 people in a room and they, they may have strong convictions, but they might all be wrong. And so truth isn't just a matter of what they can agree about. Truth is a matter of what they may or may not know about reality. And reality has a, a moral dimension to it. So I, I, I think more than you do, apparently, I think consequentialism in a revised form can capture everything we want to say about all this, about moral truth. And when someone comes forward with making claims that purport to be not consequentialist or not, you know, more commonly utilitarian, I tend to notice them smuggling in concern for consequences covertly into their deontology, into their principles, into their, even into, into their religious axioms. And, you know, I've yet to come across a case where I, I couldn't point that out. So, you know, perhaps you can, you can show me one. But I think the, the thing to acknowledge here is that consequentialism slash utilitarianism in, the, in their purest and most e easily strawmanned forms, you know, obviously don't work. So, and, and this is, I listened to the conversation you had with the neuroscientist Eric Hoyle on your podcast about all this. And 
and he was, you know, I, I don't know Eric uh, yet. I'm sure our paths will cross because I admire what he's doing. But he brought up you know, some, you know, re- rejoinders to utilitarianism of a sort that one encounters in the literature, but they they just don't get at the real view in my in my view. So the the one he used, which um, I've discussed before somewhere, is you know, on purely utilitarian grounds. It seems like it would be the right thing for a doctor who knows that he's got five patients, you know, each of whom need a different organ to uh, grab another one of his healthy patients and just vivisect him and, and distribute his organs to the other five. You've got the, the very essence of a trolley problem where we're losing one to save the five, and everyone agrees especially, that's good. Especially if he's old right? and right. the five he's saving are young. Yeah. So, Fabulous. So yeah, so that's, that seems straightforward. Sarcasm off. Yeah. And, and, and that's put forward as a, not only a problem for consequentialism, but actually a, a reductio ad absurdum of the view, right? Like obviously consequentialism does, if you're, obviously there has to be more than a concern for consequences if, if you're going to reject this version of the trolley problem. But on my view, that's just an incomplete tally of the consequences. I mean, just, just imagine the consequences to all of us for living in a society where at any moment a doctor, even your own doctor, could murder you because they've decided that your organs would be best used in you know, other people's bodies. No one wants to live in that kind of society for good reason, because of all of the paranoia and horror that would be experienced by having that be the norm of how we dealt with the organ shortage problem. Uh, and so it is with, I mean, there's so many other examples of this kind of thing. Whenever you come up with it, with a, what purports to be a counterexample to consequentialism, showing this, this horrible byproduct of it, I would argue it's a, a horrible byproduct. It's recognized to be a horrible byproduct because we all have a sense of the unhappy consequences that we're looking at when you float one of those examples. And a fuller concern for consequences needs to be priced in, uh, and so it is with many other things that we've we've talked about. So uh, when you talk about Darwin deciding whether to get married and how to think about that in consequential terms, well, what he was blind to were all of the actual effects of being married, right? He and he couldn't know on your account. He couldn't know them in advance, and maybe that's true. But the life of the married man has a qualitative character that matters because of its qualitative character, which can be more deeply or more shallowly anticipated and understood. And it really is, again, on my view, consequences all the way down and all the way up when you're talking about the, the goodness or badness of those things. And I realize I'm giving you a lot here, but just you know, one final Philip. Other things that are not usually priced in are the, the experiential consequences and gravity of how we think about ourselves and the kind of intentions we know we have toward others and the, the clarity of our consciences, right? I mean, we're, some of the things you want to maximize in order to live a good life is how you feel at four in the morning when you wake up and can't sleep and the kinds of thoughts that are there to be discovered about yourself and about your life and about your relationship to your wife, say, and and the free riding you do or don't do in that relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So like, those are all consequences. It's not just body count, you know, in trolley problems. 
uh, that one needs to factor in. Okay, try to take a cr- take yeah. a crack at let, that. Let, let me have it. Yeah. So, of course, I agree with you. It's a question of whether we can implement such a system, whether it's a practical system. Uh, I want to raise two objections to it. I'll start by talking about what economists argue. Economists' view of human behavior, which we started with at the beginning of the conversation, is that people have desires, preferences, they call them. Certain things they like, some things they don't like, some things they like a lot of, some things they only like a little bit of. And we're calculating machines in the economic model of human behavior. We spend our scarce money to get the most out of that money by creating the greatest pleasure. Oh, says the critic, uh, it only looks at things that can be measured. Oh, says the critic, that only looks at um, things where you can, that implies you have to be able to compare one thing to another. Oh, says the critic, it only, it's only about money. What about time? So a good economist takes all those things into account. And they say, and I, this was the beginning of my career, I said it myself, oh, when I say about my preferences, I don't think just about talking about things that give me pleasure. I can get pleasure from your pleasure. Mm-hmm. I can get pleasure from helping you. Charity, for example, is not irrational to the economist. It's super rational because I am happier when your poverty is reduced. And so when I give money to you, that makes me happy. It's not a, that's not an irrational act. And I can even argue that, and that's incredible because it helps me understand not just that people give to charity, but how they'll behave in the face of tax subsidies to charity, how they'll be tempted to free ride and let other people relieve the poverty because that's what maybe what they really care about, and so on and so forth. So yes, the model is fundamentally tautological, meaning it's true by definition. If you don't like my model of what people have preferences over, well, let me widen the preferences. You think Darwin's too narrow? He should have a preference for whether he's going to be a great scientist, and that should be on his cost-benefit list. Mm-hmm. And my point is, of course, that's true by definition. The question is, is it implementable in any real way? How useful is it, as I argue in the book, how useful is it? I raise the question, is it useful to try to weigh female chit-chat against not being one of the greatest scientists of all time? It's not so easy. It's not clear how to do that. But that's not the real point. The real point is that we have trouble as human beings dealing with consequences, and we ignore some. And you could say, well, but the goal is not to ignore any. And I agree, that would be lovely. But I, the question is whether, given that we do tend to ignore stuff, is that system the best system? For example, during the financial crisis of 2008, there was a standard model that banks use to measure their risk. It was called VAR, V-A-R, value at risk. It's a measure of the riskiness of one's portfolio. It's a very bad model. It was very imperfect. And it was particularly bad because, as people like Nassim Nicholas Taleb pointed out, very rare events, which came along very infrequently, were tended to be ignored by the model, which the technical reason was that the model is based on a normal distribution, which is the one we're most comfortable with dealing with mathematically. But it turns out, these kind of risks are not normally distributed, and therefore, people were unprepared for the riskiness of their portfolios, and they were destroyed, or they should have been. Some of them were, too many of them were bailed out, in my view, but they made very bad decisions. So when I raised this with a friend of mine, he said, well, what's the alternative? The VAR, value at risk, was the best model we had of a portfolio, riskiness, the riskiness of the portfolio. And his argument, which is a very common argument, I hear it all the time, you do the best you can. True, not everything can be measured, not everything can be calculated, not everything can be compared, but you do the best you can. 
and you want to include things that as many things as you can to make the fullest, best kind of decisions you could possibly make. That's lovely. The problem is, is that what happens to a human being, not a theoretical person, not a person in a textbook, but what happens to a human being who day in, day out lives what Bertrand Russell identified and Taleb later popularized as, as the turkey problem, which is, you know, every day the farmer's so nice to me and feeds me and I have a warm place and straw to lay down on. And obviously the farmer likes me and is taking care of me. I've, every day the evidence accumulates. And similarly, every day in the value at risk model, it was clear that there was no risk to my portfolio until mm. one day your portfolio blows up. And then one day on a Wednesday night uh, in November, the farmer comes to the turkey and, and chops off the turkey's head. And all the data misled you. You didn't understand the underlying process. You thought you did. So do consequences matter? Re yes. Are they really all that matter? Probably. I haven't thought about it as deeply as you have, but my guess is you're right about that. The question is, can you reliably invoke those consequences in your moral decision-making and in your practical decision-making? And I think there's a value to being aware that mm, it's harder than it might look. And in particular, certainly in the areas of, say, public policy or morality or helping other people or improving other people's lives, or again, I would suggest improving one's own life, whew, it's really hard to anticipate consequences, which is why economists worry about unintended consequences, complexity, you know, the underlying challenge of figuring out what's going to happen when I push this lever over here to this stuff over there. You know, I squeeze the balloon here and it pushes out in an area that I didn't anticipate. So in theory, 100%, pro I probably agree with you, and you could probably convince me. In practice, I think you have to be careful. That's all. Mm. Yeah, well, so I would certainly agree with that. I, I can even muddy the picture more for you and make uh, you and our, our listeners even more despairing of ever anticipating and, and you know, much less quantifying consequences. There are so many cases where truly terrible things have vastly positive consequences, or at least might, right? And we, and we can't know in advance whether they will. So like, you know, would a, would just a little nuclear war now with Russia set us on course to finally banish nuclear weapons and live, a, you know, a thousand years of peace uh, once we recognize how bad that, that exchange that killed a mere 15 million people was in Ukraine? I don't know. You could certainly see the path whereby it would prove to be so, right? And and is it the only thing that could actually convince us to get rid of nuclear weapons and uh, live a thousand years of, of peace? Hard to think of a more dangerous chain of logic. Yeah, yeah, awful, right? Like, like, but it could be true. Yeah, but it could be true, it right? It could be right. Yeah, so we but just, it might not be. It cer certainly <laughs> might not be. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly living and reasoning as though it's not. You know, my view is that even if there were some story about it being a possible silver lining to that particular mushroom cloud, there have to be other paths to a future where we banish nuclear weapons or otherwise usher in you know, a real durable peace. And those paths are going to be better than killing tens of millions of people and uh, irradiating vast parts of the world. So we, we should seek those paths. But it's very hard in practice it's very hard to do the math, and it's certainly hard to aggregate you know, specific minor harms and compare them to specific major ones, right? And this, this is something that came up in your conversation with Hoyle, where, where it's like using the analogy to a, kind of a heap of sand or you know, a mound of dirt. You know, if, you, if you just look at grains, if you look in a granular way at, at consequences, 
and you try to compare the, you know, the broken toes of a million people to the human sacrifice of one, and and how just how many broken toes are more important than the auto de fe of uh, an innocent person? Yeah. We seem to be confronting, you know, there there is no amount, and yet if you're actually talking about the arithmetic that would aggregate consequences, it seems like there must be an amount. I would just argue that what we have there is something like a Zeno's paradox, where we're, where the framing of the problem is causing us to believe that we could never get there. You know, Zeno's paradox being, you can never really shoot an arrow into a barn door because you shoot an you shoot an arrow and it has to it has to travel first halfway and then halfway again and then halfway again and then you it's never going to it's there. never going to get there, and then you have some mathematician show up and teach you how to sum the infinite series and then you realize it can get there even with math but it's you know it took us took us some centuries to actually do that and you know meanwhile philosophers ground their gears on Zeno for a good long time thinking there was a real problem there i think there are some moral variants of that where we're just we're taken in by the framing and we're not seeing how our sense of certain categorical differences really mattering can also be brought into a vision of, of consequences. And, um, well, philosophers ground their gears on Zeno's paradox, but archers didn't. <laughs> they right, just exactly, shot yeah. the arrows yeah, and yeah. lived life, and they figured it seemed to be okay. And I think the consequential perspective, while again, in theory, the best way to think about the complexity of life and how to choose and how to make decisions and the path one path one chooses out of the nearly infinite possible paths i think it's a bad way to live but that is simply a claim about the consequences of failing to solve all of those practical problems yep. and and so but what you seem to be is more of just a rule consequentialist whereas you have certain rules certain principles that are so useful i.e. they beget good consequences so reliably that you would argue, and now I'm just shamelessly putting words in your mouth, you would argue that we shouldn't worry too much about the exceptions where they fail because they're just, they save us so much time. They're so good as heuristics. So, you know, free speech being one, right? Let's, let's yeah. be biased toward talking freely about anything because that's so much of the time that's going to lead to greater tolerance and error correction and intellectual honesty and all, all the rest. You just all these good things follow. And yes, we're going to hear some hate speech. And yes, the Nazis are also going to get to talk. And, but again, you know, on, on Mill's analysis, you know, if you can't argue with a Nazi, you, if, you don't, if you don't understand deeply what's wrong with Nazism, well, then you're not, as, you're not even as good for your own side as you think you are. So, but, but, this, but, but, the, but the rules... Personal, yeah, go for it. I'm so, thinking so, more about personal decisions, yeah. personal consequences. I think it's a very useful thing to not to be afraid of failure. I think it's a very powerful thing not to be over-obsessed with the consequences of our decisions. Because most of the time, we don't know enough to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't mean choose randomly. I think there's some fundamental principles. I'll try to outline them in the book. But if we're not careful, again, that's always my caveat. If we're not careful, our focus on consequences will lead us astray. Now, it's true. I argue that the ultimate consequences will be better if you pay less attention to consequences. There is a certain paradox there, I concede. But I think it's the right way to think about this great adventure of life. 
we get one time around the wheel, mm-hmm. around the, the Ferris wheel or the merry-go-round. We're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. There's not an, enough information in all of Wikipedia and, and every library in the universe to make it particularly better because I don't have a good ability to predict those consequences. And as a result, I think I ought to use other principles than just consequences. True. I think the consequence of that giving up on consequences is quite consequential. Mm. But I think it's the right way to think about it. I think the life well lived is uh, fraught with mistakes, dead ends, misturns, go backs, U turns, and, and that's okay. And I think if you're not careful, you won't think those are okay. You think, oh, I, I need to do better than that ex ante. Mm-hmm. You won't. Don't go that way. Take a chance. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with uh, certainly most of that. I mean, I, I think I even, my, my own view is even more extreme in, in that direction because I, you know, I, don't, I, I think free will is an incoherent concept. I, I don't think anyone has free will to make the decisions they, they seem to make. Right, so it's going to ruin my book. Yeah, so, so even 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 getting rid of free will, you know, on my account. I mean, one, I think it's just a true claim about the nature of the human mind and how it's integrated with reality at large. But that aside, I think it has very good consequences to relax one's sense of one's freedom to make a decision in the first place, right? And and just to see, you can you can discover what decision emerges all by itself. You don't know what the next thought is going to be. You don't know what the next intention is going to be until it arises, and it's it will arise with precisely the strength it has. And if some countervailing thought or intention arises that uh, suggests you know you should uh, a different course, well then that will be what happens there. And you you are a witness to those changes, not their actual author, uh, though you very f- few people feel that clearly. But I mean that's where. In my view, that's where meditation comes in. And I know you actually have some experience with meditation, but um, now I, I worry that we, we really just do, we need a round two to explore all of these common interests, and uh, otherwise we will have a four-hour podcast. Actually, let's just, uh, can you comfortably do like 10 more minutes? Absolutely. No? Okay. You want to talk about, I'd love to hear, why, why do you think meditation, were you going to go more into meditation? Yeah, I'm, yeah. so I'm happy to go there. So, so just remind me, you, you've, you've sat a few, it sounded like, I don't think but, you described but, them, but. I'll tell you what I would, go first, what, were, what, were you, what did you mean just now when you said, that's why I think meditation is important? In what way? Okay. Well, so I, I th- unlike many people who think free will is an illusion, I mean, there are many scientists who have come to this conclusion just looking at how causes propagate. You know, either they're determined or they're random or there's some combination of the two, and neither of those branches gives you what people seem to claim they have in claiming to have free will. But many people think we're condemned to feel like we have free will, right? Like, so it's a powerful illusion, and that, that's why this problem in philosophy is in such good standing. I mean, we, 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 we know we have this thing. We know, we know we experience this thing. And yet we can't map it onto reality at large because all we've got are genes being transcribed and biochemical events and environmental influences and, you know, random processes and determined ones. And so it's just it's clockwork and it's rolling dice and it's some combination of the two and none of that gives you free will. 
but we know we have it because, look, I can move my hand right now, and I, I decided. But what, what I argue is that if you actually pay attention with sufficient clarity to how your experience unfolds, even your most deliberate experience, even your choice to move your right hand versus your left, or your choice to marry this person, uh, or not marry her, or marry someone else, no matter how much you go back and forth, you could sit for five hours and weigh the pros and cons. But the, if you look very closely at what the experience is like of finally arriving at the conviction that leads in one direction or the other, that is fundamentally mysterious, right? Whatever story you can tell about it, you can't know why in this moment you felt precisely the way you did and not a, a bit more or less. There are many ways I can point this out to people, but I mean the, the the exercise I often recommend is you know just think of something. Think of a let's narrow it down. Think of a celebrity, right? You you know you presumably there's at least a hundred, if not a thousand, celebrities you might think of. I mean, your your brain is capable of producing the name or image of many many people here. But if you pay attention to this process, of, and, and you're free to do it, this is a circumstance of zero coercion, you know, there's no gun to your head saying you must think of Oprah, you must think of Oprah, but you know, you're, you're, you're free, and you can change your mind, right? I, you can take as long as you want. You can think of Oprah, and then you can think of Sylvester Stallone, and then you can think of Macron, and then you can bounce back to, yeah, they, they, then you can decide, well, actually, I'm gonna, I, I really want to think of someone that no one else who Sam has asked this question of has thought of, so now I'm going to go do a deep dive into esoteric celebrities. And you think of you know, Rasputin, but then, wow, is he really a celebrity? And, the, and the, you, you, could take, you could take the rest of your life to make this decision. But at a certain point, a name and face and or face is going to come to mind, and you will settle on that one, and the settling itself will be utterly mysterious, subjectively speaking, which is to say that it will be totally compatible with a universe where free will doesn't exist. I mean, leaving aside that, free, in my view, free will doesn't only just not exist. It's impossible to describe how the universe would have to be for it to exist. It's actually just an incoherent notion, at least the, the standard conception of, of libertarian free will which I would argue, you know, contra Dan Dennett is the free will people actually think they have and why they find this an interesting problem in the first place. So my, my claim is that, and this is, you know, I have this courtesy of, of many, many years spent practicing meditation of a sort, which I think you're familiar with. The illusion of free will is itself an illusion. We, we don't actually have an illusion of free will. If you pay close enough attention, you'll see that it isn't there and that your experience is totally compatible with determinism and or randomness, and that's fine. And then, and then many things open up. I mean, I think the, the consequences of, of having this insight are almost uniformly good, despite some you know, poorly conducted research that suggests that once people no longer believe in free will, they become more eager to be free riders and you know, sneaky cheaters. And I think even Baumeister might have done some of that research. But yeah, I think that the consequences are, are especially good for one's ethical intuitions around compassion and hatred of people. I mean, does it ever make sense to really hate another human being? I think on this view, I would say no. And yet, 
you can still find other people scary and worth incarcerating for the rest of their lives because they're so dangerous. But we would do that to hurricanes and grizzly bears that ate people if we could as well. And so, yeah, is it, a lot of the knock-on effects are not what people would anticipate, especially in, the, in you know, questions of you know, law and, and justice. But uh, where they do change, I would argue they, they change for the better. But no, all of that is subordinate to what I claim is just actually true, which is if you pay close enough attention to your experience, this is how the mind is. And, and it really can't, once you see it, it really can't seem otherwise. And that's not a problem. Well, when you come on to Econ Talk, Sam, we'll talk about the, how someone who doesn't think there's free will could be such an optimist yeah. Um, yeah. about the future right. of civilization. I have a slightly different perspective on meditation. I think it's similar, but it, I think it is a different metaphysical route, maybe. Mm. And of course, I'm just fooling myself. Yeah. But first, tell, um, tell me, what was your, what's been your experience with it? So I've been on three five-day meditation retreats that were mostly silent, mm. a little bit of talking in them, processing the experience with teachers and letting people ask questions. What were these Vipassana retreats? or They had a Vipassana element. They were Jewish in their underpinnings, but I, there was a, a Vipassana, I think, flavor to it to the extent I understand Vipassana. Mm -hmm. Typical session would be, I think I've got the length right, you know, a 90-minute session of a talk, which has a name, I forget the name, what do you call it, and then sitting in silence processing the talk and maybe going through a particular practice, a blessing practice, or a gratitude practice or uh, just a mindfulness, pure mindfulness practice, mm -hmm. you know, paying attention to your breath included things like um, going outside and finding something to look at for a long time. I watched a sparrow for longer than I've ever watched a mm -hmm. sparrow. It was an extraordinary experience. Nice. Uh, that was toward the end of the retreat. If it had been the first day, I probably would have been, thought it was silly and I'd been bored. And certainly if it had been the first retreat I'd gone on, I would have said, I knew I shouldn't have come. <laughs> On the fourth day, it was incredibly powerful. It was emotionally, the whole experience each time was emotionally overwhelming. I likened it to, you know, watching Lee Miz for five days straight, mm -hmm. you know, just drained by the end of it, yeah. but joyous. And it, um, I hesitated to go the first time, and I, I wanted it to have an impact on my Jewish practice, which was a piece of this retreat, but also on my humanity. And so I asked people who had been on them before, kind of like a wild problem. I mentioned it in the passing in the book. You know, what's it like? And it's an example because it's very hard to describe what it's like. Uh, I could write a book on that. You probably could too. What it's not like is being quiet for five days. You know, when you tell people you go on a five-day, and some people, of course, go on longer, silent meditation retreat, they say, well, I couldn't do that. Why? I couldn't be quiet for five days. Have you ever tried it? No, I couldn't do it. Well, I didn't think I could either, but I did it. Does that raise the possibility that you could do it? Now that I could, I do it. I actually liked it and found it quite liberating. We weren't allowed to make eye contact with other, eye contact with other people, mm -hmm. which was, at first I thought, well, that's going to be weird. It's exhilarating when you can walk by someone in the hall and you don't have to put a face on yourself to say, I'm looking at you and showing you that I am friendly and nice. You don't even have to do that anymore. It's, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. But the part that stayed for me, I did it for about, then I had a personal meditation practice, which I kept up for about five years. I taught meditation uh, in my synagogue. I led uh, chanting in my synagogue before services, and I've done less in the last two years. 
I might go back to it. But what was powerful for me, and somewhat akin to what you're talking about, is I think it changed the way I looked at other people. It certainly changed the way I looked at myself. It had a psychotherapeutic component to it. And that's why I say in the book, I think, you know, if you want to think about who you want to become, you need to think about who you are now, hmm. and you, you need to think about who you might become. And the standard ways to do that are religion, meditation, psychotherapy, reading literature. Those are all useful for ways to get out of yourself and to think about be able to be more self-aware than you are now. Uh, self-awareness is a great skill, and that's part of what we're talking about here. But the other part for me was simply, as you say, you, you phrased it as, it's impossible to hate another human being. I found myself in the aftermath of those retreats and still do coming on, across social situations, particularly with strangers, where I remember what my old reaction would be. Mm. And I don't have that reaction anymore. I have a different reaction. I don't want to overstate the personal transformation I've undergone, like I became a, you know, a much better person. But I think I'm a more thoughtful person from, it, from that experience. I'm more aware of the stress that other people are under. I'm more comfortable with the idea that everyone is in a battle, so be kind, uh, which I think is a very powerful trite, but very powerful, important uh, attitude to take through life with other people when you can, uh, as long as you're not putting yourself in danger. And, uh, you know, in terms of free, but, but for me, since I am sympathetic to free will, um, and you are not, for me, I see this as a way in which I gained more control over myself. Mm. Now, that may be an illusion in many dimensions, by the way. It could be I'm fooling myself about my ability to be self-aware. I'm fooling myself about my ability to be empathetic with other people in difficult situations. It could be that I really am just as judgmental as I used to be. And moreover, the deeper point is it could be that this is just not a choice I've made, but rather simply an inevitability of having, by chance, chosen to go on a free, on a silent meditation retreat, and therefore, you can still believe there's no free will. But I certainly like the idea that I can become a better person. I can become a more thoughtful person. I can become a more self-aware person. I'm not going to suggest I've made enormous strides mm -hmm. in that direction. In that sense, I think it's always hard to change habits. But I think there's possibilities of change, mm -hmm. and I think you can do things that lead you more likely to change than others. And yeah, yeah. A yeah. good human being does those things. But that, that, that's all true, but none of that requires free will. For instance, there's nothing about relinquishing the idea of free will that leaves you blind to the fact that people can learn new things, right? You can learn new skills. You can, you can go from being someone who doesn't know how to play piano to somebody who is an expert at that project. And or you're saying I can't choose which instrument I'll get better at or which traits I'll think need the most work. Well, well you will. And if I do, I'm only fooling myself. Well, you will choose. I mean, there will, the proximate cause of learning to play the piano is wanting to learn to play the piano. Now, where does that come from? It's a mystery, right? It's, or it's a, there are causes all the way down. And at a certain point, you escape the, the place where you could plausibly have been the author of those causes, rather you're the, you're the beneficiary of them or the, the victim of them in the case of bad tendencies or tendencies that are pushing your life in an, in an unhappy direction. But I mean, not, none of it requires that you deny the obvious fact that in order to get anything of value, most things of value certainly done, 
things like effort and you know sticking to the plan reasoning correctly and all all of that all of that laborious stuff is still required and all of it matters and if you just there's no there's no fatalism implied here i mean just if you, many people think well without free will then why do anything you know why not just sit on the couch and you know eat corn chips and watch television well you, you because the forces that control my life won't let me <laughs> yeah right but also you you can do <laughs> that my parents upbringing forces me to be productive the way they raised no i i yeah. take the point and i i think i think i didn't give enough credence to your argument I think there is an, an inherent meditative practice properly done does build empathy for other human beings, which often leads to being less judgmental, mm-hmm. which inevitably leads to accepting other people's choices with more equanimity than you would if you believed that everything was their fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I'll take that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the d- deeper issue here is that it just, it reveals that what we're calling the self isn't what it seems to be. It's really the self and the and the free will sense are really two sides of the same phenomenological coin from my point of view. And when you when you undercut one, you undercut the other, and what you find in its place is not any kind of, you know, nihilistic loss of something valuable. You find a much larger openness to the nature of experience in the present moment, whatever it is, and 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 you and paradoxically, for at least for the purposes of talking about it, it seems paradoxical. Although from the you know from the archer's point of view, it's no more paradoxical than just putting an arrow on the bow and and letting it fly. You do get more control in the narrow sense over things you want to control. You know, like you you can decide to. Not be angry anymore, you know. Somebody where you used to be somebody who was just helplessly angry for as long as the anger was going to persist. Now you're someone who can decide. Actually, I I can just get off the ride right now. And so it's there is a degree of freedom there that's really immensely useful to have, and can help you just have the life you actually want, as opposed to the life you're condemned to have based on the reactivity you inherited from who knows where. Well, Russ, I think uh, we still have a lot to talk about, and um, well, I think we barely glanced the um, bedrock question of what makes things actually good, and how we could be confident that uh, we are that our uh, moral realism is is well founded. And uh, there's just a lot more in your book about the way in which um, aspirations change us, and just the, the usefulness of thinking in those terms. And I, I just I think there's more to talk about. So I, I'd love to continue the conversation at some point. Perhaps we can do it with you in the driver's seat on your podcast and we can air the, the resulting conversation on my podcast because I think it would be a good be one. Great. So I look forward to it. It'd be a blast. <laughs>